I am joined by Joseph Wang of FedGuy.com and Alex Etra, a senior macro researcher at Ex-Ante Data. So great to have you both here. Welcome, guys. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. It's great to be here, guys. Thanks for inviting me. And also, guys, Alex is my co-worker at the Fed. He's a master at global capital flows. So this is really going to be a treat. Alex, so we know where Joseph was. He was on the trading desk, you know, working with the money markets primarily. Where were you at the, the Fed and what floor was that? I bounced around from a few different floors, but uh, most of my time was spent doing sort of macro financial surveillance in emerging markets. Uh, and then I spent some time also uh, on the ninth floor, I guess, doing uh, the, 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 the back office stuff in the custody department. Um, so, you know, the, the part of the bank that helps uh, manage foreign central bank reserves uh, that are held in custody at the New York Fed. Guys, so you were on the ninth floor, Alex. What, Joseph, what floor were you on? Oh, yeah. Ninth floor. So you wrote, okay, both on the ninth we floor. Opposite ends of the floor. <laughs> Got it. All right. Like two ships passing in the night. All right. So, so Alex, you are an expert in flows and, you know, a lot of money in trading is made in the flows. We can have a thesis about, you know, this is bonds are going up, bonds are going down, but it really is all about the flows. So we're going to get to your, your expertise in, in a minute. But first, let's just start off with the Fed rate hikes. Uh, it's going to, uh, their FOMC meeting is in two weeks and the market's pricing in of whether the Fed is going to do another 25 basis point hike, it's kind of all over the place. Up until yesterday, the odds were increasing that they were going to hike up to like a 70% chance. But then uh, Fed Governor Jefferson really made some comments that uh, caused the market to, to hit, hit the brakes. Joseph, how would you characterize, let's say, the past you know uh, 24 hours of, of a news flow? And what are you thinking the odds are that the Fed hikes? You're exactly right, Jack. It's been a whirlwind. Up until uh, future Vice Chair Jefferson spoke, I think the market was thinking we'd have another hike in June. The market was thinking that because we had some hawkish commentary from Governor um, Wallace. So Governor Wallace, sorry, Governor Waller basically highlighted three scenarios. He said that in June, there are three ways this can go. One is that we just pause here, Fed is done with the hikes, and we're going to keep rates where we are uh, for the rest of the year. Option two, we're going to hike. In option three, we're going to skip. So we won't hike in June, but we'll hike in July. Now, Governor Waller heavily suggested that he was in favor for the latter two. So he thinks that we're not done yet, but he's not sure if we're going to hike in June. And that was teeing up the market for, for uh, some somewhat of a chance of, a, I, I think, better than even chance of a June hike. But then future Vice Chair Jefferson spoke and he's like, I'm all in on the skip. So he doesn't want to hike in June. He wants to hike in July. Well, he, he's just saying that. Obviously, he has no idea how things will turn out. I think this will ultimately hinge upon what happens with the non-farm payrolls, which report tomorrow, Friday. If we get hot payrolls, I think we'll get a June hike. If not, I think we are not going to get hike. It's, it's really just, <laughs> just going to come down to what happens Friday. Okay, so the June hike, in your mind, Joseph, is still on the table, even though we had you know our friend Nick Timoros came out with an article today that said you know that uh, it's leaning that it's, it's going to be more of a skip than a hike. Uh, it depends on what happens Friday. I think unless we get a really hot jobs report, I, I think we won't hike. But uh, it, it could be that they already have a lot of strong indications of what, what the jobs report would be. So they do get data uh, in advance. How far in advance? Uh, I, I, I'm not super sure. I, I don't know if Jefferson knew about it when he gave his speech a couple of days ago. Got it. Alex, what are you making of this? 
Yeah, I think similar to Joseph, although I think we've been more in the uh, the, the Fed can afford to skip uh, kind of camp. Um, you know, we've obviously had issues in the banking system throughout the spring uh, that have tightened financial conditions, even if they don't show up in many common financial conditions indices uh, as such. Um, so, you know, they've already done a lot of tightening. Uh, things are moving in the right direction, maybe not as quickly as they would like. Um, and so, you know, this is an opportunity for them to, to revise their forecast for the remainder of the year. We'll get new SEP dots, obviously, uh, and uh, in, in June. And then, uh, you know, they can sort of assess. We, we obviously just had the resolution of the debt ceiling. Uh, we have, you know, a, a deluge of issuance that's going to come come forth in the coming in the coming months, I think. Uh, Joseph's very well positioned to talk to that. Um, and, and so there's some amount of tightening that could be uh, done on their behalf uh, in, the, in, the, in the coming weeks from that, uh, that draining of reserves that, that may take place. So I think they can afford to skip, but I, I think it is pretty much a toss-up. The comments were not just from Jefferson, but also from Harker. Um, and so it does seem like, uh, you know, we're kind of heading into the blackout period and, it seems like certainly some people wanted to uh, to try and push the probability uh, back towards at least even odds, uh, if, if not less than 50%. Joseph, I want to ask you, how legit is this idea of a skip? And I'll, you know, sort of a, a metaphor from, from life of you know, if two people are, are dating and they're having problems. They say, oh, we're going to go on a break. But sometimes that break is a euphemism for we're going to break up, right? It's like, we're probably not going to get back together. So is this, is this skip... The, a way of sort of a euphemism for we're not going to hike in June and we may hike in July and then up oh, they don't hike in, in July. What what do you, you make of this? You know, that's a great point, Jack. It could simply be that the Fed actually doesn't think that they're done. But here's the problem. If they were to say that they were done, I'm, I'm just a pause and hold for the rest of the year, the market will aggressively price in rate cuts. Now, I don't think the Fed wants that. The Fed wants the market to believe them that they're going to hold rates around 5% for the rest of the year, higher for longer, as it would say. One way to quote unquote trick the market into pricing this is to say that, yeah, we won't hike in June, but 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 don't price in rate hikes. Don't price in rate cuts, we might continue to hike later on. So I don't know if it'll work or not, but that's one way to do it. And I think Alex made a really good point that this is a June meeting, so we're going to get some SEP dots. The SEP dots is the Fed's uh, somewhat of a forecast of where they're going to, uh, where rates will be and where GDP and inflation will be for, for the next few years. That's also an opportunity for them to emphasize to the market that they want to stay higher for longer. So they could, for example, not hike in June, but in their SEP dots uh, show slightly higher, slightly revised higher rate path projection to kind of counterbalance that. So there's a, there's a few ways they could communicate that to influence markets. And I would say it is my expectation that the, that the dots will move up in June. So that'll be a, potentially a way for them to uh, sort of try and pre-commit themselves to, to uh, continuing the relationship with rate hikes, as it were. Now let's move on to your latest piece from FedDie.com, uh, which is called Back to 2019, which is about a certain trade that was very popular back in the day. It didn't get popular because... Uh, there was a, a blow up, but now it's getting popular. So what what is the uh, Treasury cash futures basis trade and, and why is it significant? And we have uh, all your charts here so we can put them up. Oh, great. So um, the cash futures basis trade is basically an arbitrage trade where on the one hand, you sell short Treasury futures 
And on the other hand, you own uh, cash treasuries. Now, sometimes there's a disconnect, uh, this kind of a disconnect between the pricing where the cash futures uh, pricing in, and the uh, the, the futures pricing and the cash treasuries pricing is off. And so if you are a hedge fund, what you would do is you would try to arbitrage that difference. Now, this is important because when you do this trade, you oftentimes do it in size. So the basis is the, the amount of money you can make on this is really small. And so you have to level yourself up to, let's say, a few hundred billion dollars overall to make it worth your while. Before 2019, this trade was huge. And you can see in, in the block charts that I have there that heading from 2018 to 2020, the amount of uh, long treasury exposures the hedge fund community had and the short short uh, treasury futures positions were rising. Now, our, the funny thing is this basically made the hedge fund community the marginal buyer of cash treasuries heading into 2020. So a lot of people talk about well, the Treasury is issuing so much debt, it's going to be $1 to $2 trillion a year for forever. Who's going to buy all that debt? Um, before 2020, it was the hedge fund community. From 2020 to 2022, it was the commercial banks and, of course, the Fed. And now it looks like the hedge fund community is back into this trade where they're buying a lot. If you, if you go down a little bit, you can see the repo volume surge. So when you are... Yeah, so you see that surge in repo volumes. So when you're in this trade, you have to buy cash treasuries and you finance that in the repo market. And you see that surge there over the past half year uh, coincides with also short treasury futures by the uh, hedge fund community. So you can see that strongly suggests that this trade is back. And so when people are worried about who's going to buy all those treasuries that are, that are coming now that the debt ceiling is over, it seems like it's going to be the hedge fund community because they want to do this trade. Uh, another thing that's really interesting is that, you know, as our friend Andy Constant noted, for every long, there's a short. Now, why is there a disallocation in the cash and the treasury futures basis? It's because it seems a lot of the real money investors, they are gaining exposure in treasuries by buying them. And so they seem to want to have greater exposure to duration. Maybe they're, they're part of the low inflation or recession trade. I'm not sure. But it's because that they want to have more exposure that the basis widens and so the hedge funds come in and try to close it. So that kind of, in my view, reveals some positioning of the investor community in the market. Sorry to interrupt. Wanted to let you know about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are going to be there. So if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 20% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, click the link in the description and use code GUIDANCE20. That's GUIDANCE20. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. So I'm, I'm not an expert on this at, at all, but I'm, I'm just going to break down how I see it. So you want to go long bonds or short, short bonds. There's two, at least two ways to do it, two, two main ways to do it. There's uh, the cash bond market where you actually take money that you actually have and then you buy it. And you, you can lever that up, I guess, via, via repo, but those are uh, real bonds. Whereas that's different from futures where it's a contract uh, you know, through the uh, CME, Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Uh, it's the same way you'd go long you know, cattle futures or you'd go short oil futures. It's, it's a, a derivative. It's a, it's a futures contract, so not cash bonds. So there's the cash market and then there's 
the futures market. And for uh, various reasons, I mean, I think in the piece, uh, which is called it, it, uh, Back to 2019, tax efficiency, if people want to go long and as well as just leverage ease of use, uh, they can go long, let's say, a bunch of two-year future, two-year note futures. And it'll be a constant two-year contract as opposed to if they buy a two-year cash bond, you know, in, in six months, it's going to turn into a one-and-a-half-year bond, which is kind of annoying. Um, so people who want to get long... They a lot of them are doing that via the future, so that pushes up the price of the futures relative to the cash to your note. So um, it's going to make it you know if it's a hundred and a hundred a hundred dollars on the futures uh, uh, versus you know ninety nine and you know point nine eight or something on the on the cash bonds, that's the price. The yield will be you know a, a few basis points of, of difference. So they short the futures and then buy the cash bonds, uh, and they do that via repo. And um, that's actually one of the charts we'll put up right here. Uh, is is just how that this this sort of trade works, and then uh, it, it's it's kind of free money. So what what can go wrong uh, uh, with this, Joseph? And and now we'll actually move on to, to this chart. Which if people you know people a lot of people on Twitter posted and you know been impressed by this not this chart but a chart that shows the uh, the bottom net line or something similar. Uh, this is hedge fund net short position, but something from the commitment of traders that shows speculative positions are record short the bond markets. So people are saying. People are getting really into this bond market short, and they make the um, uh, contrarian trade. You know, if everyone is short, then you want to be long. But as you know, Andy Collison says, there's a net long for every short. And some of those people, they're not you know macro hedge funds who are making a bet that uh, rates will continue to go up. A lot of them are just what you were saying, Joseph, doing this basis trade. So they're short the futures, but they're also long uh, the cash bond. So it's not as if it's not a it's directional trade, right? Exactly. It's not a directional trade. So if you're thinking that all the hedge funds are just you know, short bonds and they're going to have to capitulate, that, that's definitely not what's happening because they're hedged, right? They're short the futures, but they're long the cash bond, as you explained very well, Jack. So they're not in there for the directional exposure. They're in there for the bases. And what that means is that as the future contract rolls toward expiration, uh, see the, the futures price and the cash price converge. And the investor in that harvests the bases, so they don't. They're not really betting on whether or not, let's say, treasury prices go up or down, yields go up or down. They're just doing this this uh, arbitrage trade. That's all they're doing. And it, it went really, really wrong in um, in 2020 in, in March, where the bases usually, well, definitely it'll converge, but before it converges, it could widen further. And in March 2020, it widened significantly, uh, and then a lot of people got washed out. And the people lost a lot of money and it disappeared for a couple of years uh, until until a few months ago. But uh, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen right now. Basically, you're collecting pennies in front of a steamroller. <laughs> Got it. And the steamroller, uh, a lot of people were flattened in September 2019. I think that's why uh, the Fed had to uh, do repo injections as well as March 2020. A lot of flattenings happened. Uh, Alex, what do you make of this as, as someone who follows positioning really closely? Yeah, so I'd say a couple things. Um, one, you know, as somebody who tracks flows quite closely, um, I maybe just add a little bit of, of of perspective on the 
the long cash bond position that we're seeing from asset managers in the CFTC data. So the first thing I would say there is, is that we, we've seen pretty strong inflows into fixed income funds this year. And so if you're a bond manager and you're getting inflows, you know, you're, 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 you have to deploy that AUM somehow, right? So you either need to buy cash bonds or you, you know, buy treasury futures to gain that exposure. So they have to do something with it. Uh, the other thing is, is we track some data that we collect um, looking at the largest U.S. bond funds, and we look at their duration, position versus their benchmark. Um, and they, you know, basically have been short uh, for the last several years, but actually year to date and, and in, in recent months, they have flipped to being modestly net long uh, duration relative to their benchmark. So I think both of those data points do provide, you know, the CFTC data, as you say, you know, the, for every long, there's a short. Um, but I think that those, those, those two data points that are sort of from separate sources do add some, uh, you know, some confidence that maybe these asset managers are, in fact, um, getting longer duration and, and, and buying bonds. So I just wanted to add that perspective. It's, it's the exact opposite of the uh, ch- uh, chart of the commitment of traders shorting the futures. So the levered funds that Joseph was referring to doing the basis trade, you know, I, I defer to him on, on, on the basis trade uh, side of, of that and the hedge fund activity. But I was just trying to add perspective on um, the, the asset managers that, are, that appear to have the net long in treasury futures. That is the offset, the long that is offsetting the hedge fund short. Um, I'm just adding some perspective that we are seeing inflows to bond funds and we are seeing that bond funds um, are increasing their duration relative to their benchmark. Um, and so, so that provides some kind of evidence that that, they, that these asset managers, these bond funds, are in fact, um, you know, buying bonds and futures and, and, and extending duration. Got it. And that is a directional position. So the people who are long are largely directional, whereas the people who are short are it's an arb. They're they're short against a cash position. So really, you know, based on Joseph, what, what you and Alex are saying, putting it two and two together. The case that is put by someone you know, on Twitter who says people are so short bonds, therefore they must go up. It's actually the exact opposite, right? Let's get to the whole picture, though, too. I mean, what's the perception? What's the sentiment? What's the what people are, are worried about a recession, it seems. And if you look at uh, the path of Fed policy that's being priced into short interest rate futures, everyone's like either everyone's worried for downside risk. Right. That's why they're pricing in a lot of uh, Fed cuts later in the year. So. That, that seems consistent to me with um, people more afraid of downside risk or lower inflation or something like that. I think that's right. And, I, you know, something certainly that we've seen not just in, in U.S. fixed income this week, but kind of globally in fixed income over the last week, we've had yields moving lower uh, in a lot of different jurisdictions. Um, maybe the U.K. is, I mean, even there, yields have moved lower over the week. But, um, you know, the, the inflation trajectories that we're seeing that in debt that we saw in Europe um, have people kind of starting to, you know, second guess or scale back their hiking expectations for the ECB. As I said, the U.K. is a little bit of an outlier. Um, but but overall, I think uh, when, when I look at markets, when we look at markets sort of from a global perspective, you know, there's a lot of kind of worry out there in recent sessions uh, about global growth and about the growth outlook. I think a lot of that stems from China. But um, but I, but I think that, you know, there are there's a sort of a real mix of data points. You look at the ISM t- t- today it was very weak. Um, we'll see what payrolls does tomorrow, obviously, as Joseph mentioned. Right. And so, Alex, what are you seeing on the global bond allocation front, not just into you know, particular U.S. treasuries, but you know, what are central banks doing? Are they buying or selling bonds or letting them roll off? 
what our reserve manager is doing, what our portfolio manager is doing. In 2022, the bid for the, the bond was clearly not there. Bonds had a horrible, you know, historically horrible year in 2022. What's your outlook for 2023 based on the flows that, you, that you're seeing? Yeah. So maybe I'll just step back and talk about 2022 for, for, for a minute, right? Um, you know, from, from my perspective, tracking global capital flows, 2022 was kind of a banner year. Um, <clears throat> we had some really big stories and really big flows and, and, big, and big shifts, right? So we had the Eurozone gas crisis, which led to, you know, the current account position in the Eurozone deteriorating by two to three percent of GDP, um, you know, if those gas prices were to materialize on a, in a sort of permanent basis. So the Eurozone traditionally runs a surplus, a current account surplus, which means they tend to export capital, they buy foreign securities on net, right? Um, so that was a big shift where, uh, you know, the Eurozone was going into deficit. The counterpart of that, obviously, was you had Russia and, and, and other energy exporters. So OPEC plus were experiencing massive surpluses because of high energy prices. So their current account surplus, they needed to recycle those petrodollars uh, in, in, into something, into some foreign asset. Um, we had um, uh, obviously the EM intervention story, right? So EM, traditionally, there's kind of two camps within EM, right? There's a lot of EMs that are net commodity exporters, like some of the OPEC plus members, but also your Brazils, your Chile's, your Colombia's and the like. Uh, and then you have a, a subset of EMs that are net commodity importers like Korea, Taiwan, um, you know, and many of the countries in Southeast Asia. And so you had this kind of divergence within EM uh, where we had a lot of net importers were, were selling reserves. They were selling FX uh, to defend their currencies against depreciation. Um, so, you know, when you looked at uh, intervention trends for sort of EM X China, 2022 was a, a fairly unusual year where we had very large sales of, of, of foreign reserves, which is to say sales of, of fixed income securities primarily in the US and Europe and Japan. Um, so there was kind of this uh, complicated mix of, of things going on in, in the global flow story last year. Um, you know, the other one being uh, Japan uh, and, and, and Japan also like the Eurozone and a little bit like Korea uh, is a net energy importer. Uh, and so was also facing very high energy costs, natural, you know, big, huge importer of LNG, huge importer of oil. Um, and so those high energy prices were also weighing on, on Japan's surplus. Um, and at the same time, you have uh, sort of the, the move in interest rates in the U.S. Uh, that, that really changes the calculus for a lot of Japanese investors, um, some of whom you know, buy foreign fixed income securities, buy treasury securities or Eurozone government bonds on a hedged basis, uh, and some of whom buy it on an unhedged basis. And so given the, the change in the slope of the yield curve uh, in, in the U.S., those hedging costs became extremely prohibitive. And so you had a lot of, of, of Japanese fixed income investors kind of unwinding uh, or rolling off some of their, um, their global fixed income, hedged global fixed income holdings. So it was kind of a very complicated mix. I think, you know, it was sort of encapsulated by the mood that we had really, you know, let's say last September, October, if you recall, you know, that period, August through October, roughly, uh, where we had, you know, treasury yields just kept grinding higher, you know, fixed income vol was really elevated. Energy prices were super high. Um, and we had, you know, 
the Japanese Ministry of Finance intervening in currency markets. We had, uh, you know, emerging markets intervening in currency markets, um, and so it was. It was actually a pretty tense and messy uh, environment in, from an international uh, finance perspective. Um, you know, it's very unusual for Japan to intervene in currency markets. I think it's the first time that they've sold in decades, uh, sold foreign currency in decades. So when we had this sort of doom loop where where they, you know, rising yields were causing them to sell and then their selling was causing yields to rise even further. Um, so we were in a, we were in kind of a bad equilibrium there. And then we got the relief uh, from from the low, you know, the, the sort of peak out in, in CPI in November and the dollar really started to soften uh, and the flows started to improve uh, and intervention tapered off. So I think this year, coming into this year, we were in a much better place uh, than, we, than where we came from in 2022. Energy prices had come down, Eurozone situation was more stable, um, fixed income vol was kind of you know, moderating and going down. Uh, February, we had a little bit of a re return to the dynamics of, of, of late 2022. Uh, and then we had the banking issues in, in the U.S., which really took, you know, sort of U.S. yields and, and, and Fed hiking expectations down, at least for a time. Uh, and that also provided some relief for these reserve managers and, and, uh, and others. But when we look at the Japanese flows, the, the hedging costs, the, the yield curve shape is really still prohibitive. Uh, for them to be buying foreign fixed income on a hedged basis. We still haven't yet had any adjustment to the BOJ's yield curve control framework, which many people expect to happen at some point in the, in the future and coming quarters. Um, you know, interest rates in the Eurozone are much higher than they have been in nominal terms in many, many uh, decades. And even though the current account surplus in the Eurozone is recovering from the energy shock last year, it's still probably going to end up a little bit lower than where it was prior to the Ukraine uh, conflict and the energy shock. So when I look at global flows this year, I think the big question mark that's still out there is how this structurally higher interest rate environment globally is going to play out in terms of, you know, the traditional role of Japan and the eurozone as being major uh, buyers of foreign of, of of global fixed income. Thanks, Alex. So just a, a few terms you said: FX, that's foreign exchange, so central banks selling their own currencies. EM, of course, refers to emerging markets. A CPI measure of inflation, consumer uh, price index. So, Alex, the main driver, or, or the uh, a very large driver of the bond sell-off, the horrible year in bonds in 2022, and everyone knows is inflation was uncomfortably high. Fixed income securities, uh, there's no upside convexity. If interest rates are four percent, you're only going to be paid four uh, percent. You know, un unlike stocks, which can be you know, passed on those higher prices, and, and uh, you know, their earnings will go up too. So, th that's kind of the macro broad 10,000 foot view why bonds perform so poorly. There are, you know, once you go down into the nitty gritty, it's very, very complex. And that's why you know, we're so glad you're here. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the Federal Reserve's rate hikes in 2022, you know, going from 0% to 5%, quite, quite extreme, quite fast. How did that uh, impact and why did that impact the foreign bid for treasuries? And you mentioned the, the uh, Japanese pension managers. So, Japanese pension managers, insurance funds, uh, their clients, they have needs that are denominated yet, not dollars. So they buy U.S. bonds, but they hedge the currency risk. Why is it that the Federal Reserve's rapid rate hikes uh, increased those hedging costs and made that unattractive? Can you give us a little more color on that, please? 
Yeah. So there's a couple of things. So um, when you look at Japanese investors, they're not monolithic. Um, there's different institutional sectors and players that have different incentives. So um, for instance, the, the, the pension fund, the government pension fund, which is kind of like a uh, privately managed, but publicly owned um, uh, sovereign wealth fund, kind of, um, uh, they, they have uh, a mandate, you know, where their target allocation for their portfolio is essentially, you know, 25% foreign equities, 25% foreign bonds, and then 25% domestic equities, 25% domestic bonds. So they have kind of a longer term strategic view about what's the optimal asset allocation for, for, for their policyholders and what's going to get them the highest returns over the long run they tend to invest on an unhedged basis. So they'll just buy foreign bonds and foreign equities outright and hold it. Then you have um, banks, Japanese banks. Um, you know, yields have been historically low and the yield curve incredibly flat in Japan for a long time. Uh, and banks are in the business of intermediation. They want to, you know, borrow short term, lend long term and earn a spread. Right. And so they typically like when there's an upward slope to the yield curve, because it means that you can actually earn some some spread by engaging in that maturity transformation. Um, but in Japan, that's not really been uh, a very profitable uh, business for many decades. And so they've engaged in other kinds of, um, of investments whereby, you know, maybe they'll, they'll borrow short term in dollars, maybe in the repo market, uh, and then they'll buy treasury securities at a 10 year point, right? And so they now are FX hedged, but they have a maturity mismatch in the sense that they're borrowing short term and they're holding a long duration asset. And the problem is, is when the Fed, you know, aggressively hiked interest rates last year, the, the you know, short-term interest rates rose much more than long-term interest rates. And so suddenly that kind of arbitrage, that kind of curve trade is no longer profitable. And then there's a third set of investors, so that's banks. And then there's a third set of investors, which are life insurers. So they have primarily yen denominated liabilities to their policyholders. Um, but they're looking for, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're sort of like liability, you know, long dated liability driven investors. They, they want long, um, you know, duration assets to match their long duration liabilities. Uh, but there's a limited supply in, in Japan's case because the BOJ has bought so many of the outstanding Japanese government bonds or JGBs. So they've also looked for, uh, you know, investment opportunities abroad and they do some of it unhedged like the pensions where they'll just buy treasuries outright. Uh, and then they do other parts of it that are, that are hedged currency hedged. Um, and the thing is, is currency hedging, the cost of currency hedging is really a function of the relative slopes of different yield curves uh, or in, in the different currencies. And so again, when the U.S. yield curve inverts, that tends to raise the cost of, you know, essentially uh, hedging on a three-month basis to hold your 10-year treasury bond. So you're earning your 10-year treasury bond yield, but then you're having to roll over every three months in the currency forward market, uh, your, your, your foreign currency hedge. And as U.S. short-term interest rates rise, the cost of rolling over that three-month hedge goes up, and so it becomes harder to earn that spread. Joseph, that trade now is a very unprofitable trade because you'd be borrowing at 5% to buy a 10-year treasury that yields you know 3.7%. 
So what are the people who were doing that carry trade, you know, presumably they still work this, the same fund. Like, what do they do? Are they just at the beach? What, what are they doing? All that? Or are they doing the reverse? They're shorting the 10-year charge by cash. So I'll just, I'll just review very basically. So like, like Alex mentioned, if you're a Japanese investor or any foreign investor and you want to buy something in another currency, say dollars, there's a couple of ways you can do this. One is that you just go and, and you borrow in the repo market with dollars and then you buy the 10-year. Boom. Your, your currency is hedged because your liability is, is dollar repo and your asset is, is dollar treasuries. Uh, another way that people do it would be, uh, let's say you borrow in the FX swap market. So what you would do as you would, you start with yen and you swap that yen for dollars. So you borrow dollars against that yen and then take those dollars and buy treasuries. And like Alex described, and like you just mentioned, though, both those borrowing rates are uh, basically short-term rates. So when the curve is inverted, that trade doesn't make sense because you're borrowing at a higher interest rate than you're receiving uh, on your asset side. So it all disappears. And so Alex had a really good piece uh, just a, just a few months ago on this, where Japan used to be a very big buyer of, uh, let's say, agency MBS and treasuries. And partially because of this, uh, the shape of the curve, it doesn't make as much sense for them anymore. Uh, you could still buy dollar assets unhedged. Uh, in that case, you would be kind of like betting on the currency. So betting that the dollar would appreciate against the yen, which actually has been a pretty good bet for the past few months. So even though they didn't make that much money on their interest rates, they could have made a lot of money on the FX play. Although that's really risky, right, Alex? I don't think they want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, obviously the pension funds last year, you know, the, the yen depreciated a lot in 2022 against the dollar. And so those unhedged dollar holdings became much more valuable in yen terms. Um, so, uh, now the question is, is whether you think the yen, you know, it, it went, you know, from 110 to 150 last year at the peak, roughly. Um, now we're right around 138, 139, something like that. Um, you know, if you think that the yen is going to go to 170, uh, uh, then then also it makes sense to to. to you know, you're going to get a lot uh, uh, on, on, on your foreign bond in yen terms. But if the yen is going to go to 120, then, then you lose money that way, right? So the, the, the unhedged position comes with that, that risk that you're taking the currency risk, right? Um, it, could go, it could go either way. There are some institutions in Japan that also uh, are, are like a postal bank and some other kind of cooperative banks uh, that, that have deposits. And, and those ones, those, those institutions, they typically put their money into essentially an investment fund. They sort of outsource the asset management to an investment fund. And then those investment funds buy foreign bonds. And it's a little unclear how much hedging they do. Um, but that's another key in, class of investors that we have to watch uh, uh, is a little bit more opaque, uh, but that we have to watch uh, for these global fixed income flows. For Alex, from your perspective, so if, if um, these foreign bonds are, are less attractive to the Japanese investors, are they staying home or are they going up to the risk spectrum, maybe buying other stuff like corporate debt or equities or something like that? And also, if the Japanese investors are, are not buying, let's say, agency NVS in the same size that they used to, have you detected uh, a new investor class to take their place? The pensions continue to kind of just, I think, 
manage the currency risk and try and time when they buy things, uh, uh, buy, buy foreign bonds or treasuries, for instance. Um, the, the life insurers primarily, they're doing kind of a mixture of a lot like the, the problem is is that they don't they don't want to like just sell all of their negative carry positions immediately one because the bonds prices have fallen because interest rates have gone up so much so you'd actually real have to re, then realize the losses on the bond portfolio so you have kind of a, a dilemma there if you're one of these hedged insurers where do you want to just get out of the position immediately and and realize the the loss on the bonds, uh, or do you want to pay some negative carry because oh the bond's going to mature in six months time anyways, um, and and then you don't have to realize that loss. Um, so what we think has been happening is they mostly have been allowing the portfolio to to roll off and mature, and then they take some portion of that and they'll roll it into higher yielding. Uh, assets in the U.S. So instead of instead of reinvesting the maturing treasury back into a treasury uh, and hedging it, you could reinvest into IG or high yield corporate bonds, um, which is really you know, given the how how high the hedging costs are right now, you do need to kind of go out the credit spectrum. Just going into to MBS isn't really going to get you enough of a pickup to to make it uh, economical. And then they take another portion of it and they they just sell the dollars uh, and they repatriate it back to Japan um, and you know the BOJ hasn't uh, abandoned yield curve control yet but they did modify the frame you know they did widen the, the band on the 10-year back in December so you know we're already seeing that the curve in Japan especially past the 10-year point is steepening is higher and so they're looking at it as hey this is an opportunity I haven't had an opportunity to buy a 20 or 30 or a 40-year Japanese government bond yielding anything attractive uh, in decades. And so now this is this is an opportunity for me to do that. So they're doing kind of a mixture of, of those two different things, I think. Yeah, 50 basis points. I mean, that's a, that's a bargain. <laughs> of, oh my God, so much yield. <laughs> Whole 100 basis points, 150 basis points, yeah. Yeah, that, that's probably on the, the 20 or 30. I, I exactly, yeah, yeah. I think the 10 year is at zero, but it's a minus 50 or plus 50, right? That's the one you said, the widen the band. So now it's... Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to recall where the. Yeah, I think it is 50 basis point. Uh, but it's it's basically right at 50 basis points right now, and it's under. The, it's it's there's uh, even the even the 10 year swap rates, um, which were trading well above what the yield cap was um, uh, back in the end of last year, in the beginning of this year, has now come back in, uh, and is trading below the yield cap. Last I looked. Um, so the, and actually this is just. Because it came up today, uh, there's a, a survey that the BOJ does, essentially sort of like a survey of primary dealers, um, looking at what the sort of modal expectations for when the yield curve control may be changed. And it actually, uh, the latest survey shifted that expectation sort of from Q2 of this year to Q3 of this year. So there has been some further, um, you know, I think the new governor at the BOJ has been successful in, in, in getting across that he's a patient, he's going to take a patient approach to altering the yield curve control framework. Right. And for more insight on that, people definitely need to check out uh, Weston Nakamura's work, who's a, a trader at based in Japan, who's an analyst for Blockworks Macro. His videos are on Blockworks Macro and his podcast is called Market Depth. So, so people, people should check that out. Uh, so Alex, let's move on from the world of bonds. Let's go into flows. Uh, What's going on in the 
stock markets when it comes to flows or people putting money into the stock market, they're taking it out. You know, you look at the stock market, particularly technology, AI stocks, they are on an absolute tear. And I mean, I just talked to a buddy of mine who shared some fantastic, some fascinating statistics just on the the deciles uh, based on, on market cap of just how narrow this, this rally is. But what do you say equity flows? What are you, what are you, what do you, how do you define an, an equity flow different from the price? What is the insight that is, is different? And then, yeah, I mean, what are you seeing there? Yeah, so we track a couple of different types of equity flows. One is cross-border. So like I, all the things I just talked about, about, you know, Japanese investors buying U.S. treasuries could be Japanese investors buying U.S. equities as well. Uh, but we also track domestic flows. So these would be primarily flows into mutual funds and ETFs. Um, so those are you and I, uh, when we go and we buy our SPY, um, right, then that's an inflow into the SPY fund. The AUM of the fund goes up. Um, the fund has a, a, a mandate or, is, you know, in the case of an ETF, is benchmarked to a certain index and is going to go out and, and, and buy those, those stocks. So, so that inflow into the fund management industry itself is kind of what we're, is the other form of flow that we, we look closely at. Um, you know, there I would say it's actually uh, a little bit of uh, similar to what I was describing about 2022 and then this year. Like, we had a couple of years during the pandemic where equity flows, fund flows into equity funds uh, were unprecedentedly massive. Um, I mean, we had more flows into U.S. equity funds in. 2020, 2021 than we had over the previous decade. Um, so people just took their their stimmies uh, or their excess savings or however you want to think about it, and they deployed it into you know different assets. And equities was a key key asset that they that they deployed it into. So we were already coming from a very very high level of flows over the last couple of years. And what we've seen is is that actually the inflows into U.S. equities have kind of tapered off. And, and I think, you know, obviously there are people who follow the, the, the equity markets on a day in day out basis much more closely than I do, um, you know, and who are looking at every, you know, intraday move and tick. Um, but, you know, the equity markets kind of been trading side, you know, sideways, you know, it's had its ups and downs, but it's kind of still below its prior peak. Right. So I do think that the period in which we had extraordinary inflows was a period in which equities performed very strongly. And I think the period in which uh, equities have kind of moved a little bit more sideways have been a period in which equity inflows have been have been relatively weaker. You can argue the causality could go either way that people the inflows follow the performance or that the flow, you know, the performance follows the flows. Um, and that's a philosophical, philosophical debate. But I would just say that from a stepping back from a multi-year perspective, we see that there's substantially less inflows into equities than there were over the last several years. So it doesn't mean that there's outflows uh, every day or every week or anything like that. But sometimes it's the, the change in momentum of those flows can be as important as the absolute level of them. Um, with respect to tech stocks specifically, so obviously is something uh, I know we, we exchanged some notes on, but um, you know it's very difficult to track 
um, these kinds of flows into single name stocks. Um, so if you know there are specific, you know, Nvidia. If everybody goes out and buys Nvidia, uh, that's not a flow that I that I can observe in the data that I look at. But I do look at sector flows, so flows into the information technology sector versus the materials sector, for instance. Uh, and it's also not obvious from that uh, sector level view that there's particularly strong inflows into information technology. It, like I said, it could be the case though that that's just a too aggregate a level to look at. You know what are flows into. AI-specific stocks, single names, or into AI-focused um, ETFs or mutual funds. I think to Alex's point, broadly speaking, most stocks aren't doing that well, right? It's really just a very, very narrow set. So uh, that seems to be supporting supporting some of the broader indexes. So yes, and does make sense. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of forward guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance 10. Thanks. And let's get back to the interview. The rally is very narrow and it's counting on a, on a handful of stocks that definitely is, you know, a sign not a great sign, but Alex, so it sounds like the flows haven't been coming in into the big, big flows, and yet the, the shares go up. Uh, and you know, of Apple, of Microsoft, and you know, those are such a big percentage of the S and P five hundred. That the S and P five hundred, you know, some people are saying it's a it's a new bear market, and I mean, it really is quite quite remarkable. I think uh, if you look at like market cap, the top ten percent decile of uh, of market cap for the Nasdaq is up like sixty percent year to date. Um, so it's it, it, it really is just these giant stocks and these AI stocks that are leading it higher. So and you said that there isn't that many flows into the AI funds. Maybe as you said, that's because AI as a category hasn't been uh, uh, sort of marketed to the public in terms of, of selling stocks. So so why are the the, the shares up then? Well, I mean, uh, the shares can go up. Prices can change uh, aside from flows as well, right? Um, uh, one reason why why uh, tech stocks are, are are doing better this year, I'm just using tech stocks as a shorthand, uh, is because they did really poorly last year, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, one of the reasons why they did really poorly last year is because interest rates and inflation were just going up and up and up, and they, they were seen as being sensitive to you know a change in the interest rate environment. And you know, interest rates have also kind of gone sideways over the recent period. Um, so there's a little bit of a, just, a, um, I think, a, a stabilization in the expectations about the path of, of interest rates over coming years uh, that has benefited them, right? And I think, you know, 
that was probably particularly evident. I'd have to go back and look at it. But you know, when we had really large moves in U.S. interest rates down in March in response to the banking tension, uh, I would be willing to bet that probably there was some outperformance. Some of that 60% year-to-date performance may have been uh, particularly in that period. Um, I don't want to hang my hat on that without having looked at it further, but. My point being that I think that these 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 stocks are also sensitive to other things other than flows, so interest rates, earnings. They've all undertaken um, substantial restructurings, cost cutting. Um, you know, so the, the the earnings outlook has also factored into why the why they perform. The earnings have been resilient. So. Hey everyone, Jack here. Just want to provide an update. Uh, the conversation that we were having, you're listening to. Joseph, Alex, and I had it on the 1st of June, uh, which was a Thursday. And at that date, the flows into U.S. equities, the official data, uh, it still was showing not a lot of inflows. And that's what Alex is talking about. However, uh, at, at the following day on the 2nd, the new data got released, or, or you know, shortly after, new, new data got released, showing quite significant inflows uh, to U.S. equities. Uh, you know, around 20 billion uh, of inflows uh, for all of USA, and uh, close to half of that—not quite half of that—was into the IT sector, information technology stocks. So, uh, just want to say that that data there uh, has actually changed. So we could flash this uh, data up here. You'll see that the the gray and blue bar combined, uh, showing you know, close to 20 billion dollars of, of inflows, and uh, you know that blue bar is you know nearly half of that 20 billion of, of inflows uh, are uh, um, uh, technology stocks. And we'll, we'll show on this chart that in the dark orange, you'll see that uh, in, in, in the most recently, there's a p- big pickup into uh, information technology stocks. So just want to provide that that update to the data uh, to the, now that the data has been released after the we shortly filmed our, our conversation. All right, thanks. Let's get back to the uh, interview. Yeah, and, you know, Joseph, I, I know better than to you know, ask you, like, what's your S&P 500 target? You know, <laughs> yeah, don't oh, ask me either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you know, Joseph, you, we've, we've known each other. We've done a lot of interviews together. I mean, how are you thinking about this rally in, in stocks, which has definitely taken me by surprise? Probably not you. You've no, been a lot more I, I am, No, I am surprised as well, so I would not have expected this. So when I take a look at the macro landscape, uh, first of all, I, I note that you know, there seems to be a lot of pessimism seems to be that market persistently, persistently thinks that the Fed is going to be cutting rates soon. I, I know that the 10-year has uh, has been basically been stuck around 3.5% for some time. Uh, my, my best guess is that, you know, there's a lot of people out there thinking that we're trying to get ahead of basically what they perceive to be the end of the rate hike cycle. So uh, I think a lot of people think that once that inflation is getting under control, soon the Fed is going to cut rates because the Fed wants to protect growth. And, you know, if rate cuts are there, maybe not not too far afterwards, we could have something like Kiwi. And we all know that, uh, you know, in that in that old world where there are rate cuts and there are there's a lot of easy monetary policy, tech stocks do well and, and bonds do well. And I think a whole lot of people are just trying to get ahead of that trade. Um, they could be right, or we could be in a different world where the Fed actually does stay higher for longer. Um, Guess we'll find out. The the eye the thing, though, I think it's legitimate. There, there is a lot of real interest in that, just like there's real interest in crypto as a very interesting technology that could have big ramifications. You can always get ahead of yourself in that sense, though. We could be ahead of ourselves. 
Um, I mean, nothing goes straight up, right? We've seen what happens when these go straight up. Um, so, but I think there is something interesting in, in that field. Uh, I just don't know what what the right price is for it. Yeah, and Alex, when when you say money isn't flowing into AI stocks, that sounds a little or into AI funds, it sounds bearish, but it actually kind of from a contrarian sense, it's a little bullish. It's, so it's if if why are they going up if no one's flooding into it? You know, if if no money was flooding into ARKK, but Tesla was you know doubling every six months, that would be very bullish. It's it's when everyone starts knowing about it and the money does flow in, then then it becomes mainstream and there's no one. Yeah, soon we're going to someone is working on an AI ETF right now. It's going to come any moment, I'm sure, that we can start tracking it. Well, there already is a stock whose ticker is AI, and you know on the fundamentals of the stock, I'm not particularly uh, uh, favorable. But just based on the fact that its ticker was, I was like, should I, should I, you know, get into this stock or something? And I ended up not doing it. And if it's it's up eight, eight, it's actually down today. But it's, I mean, it's just probably up like three hundred percent in the past this year. Uh, so you know, there's a Bloomberg story on that stock as well. The guy who who owns that company is a master marketer. I, th- I think he used to label himself an energy company back when energy was big, and then he changed it to the Internet of Things when Internet of Things is big. And uh, he uh, thinks thinks of himself as an AI guy now. So. Yeah, and it pretty much is a, is a consulting company as something like, you know, 70, 80% of the clients are oil and gas companies, but he, he marks himself as like an ESG company, even though, I, and I read this on his Wikipedia page, so it could be true, false, but I think it's true, is that he uh, emits more uh, via private plane than like anyone in the world or something. <laughs> so that's just a little tidbit, tidbit on that uh, um, stock. Okay, so that's, that, that, that's the stock market. Should we move on to... The plumbing, um, you know, Alex, you read Joseph's you know, work on Fed, FedGuy.com uh, you know, very, very uh, frequently. And I, I know you've got a, a, a lot of questions for him, particularly about his last piece, his penultimate piece about uh, the lowest common level, level of, of reserves. You want to ask a question for Joseph? Yeah. So first I just say, yeah, I, I read as much of Joseph's stuff as I can. I, I, I bought his book uh, when it came out. I was an early adopter, I'd like to say, and uh, I've learned a ton from from reading your stuff, Joseph. So uh, thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, I think for me, some of the questions would be, um, uh, you know, we kind of understand some of the basics of, of, of some of the basic mechanics, but um do you see this as being, you know, I, I get a lot of questions. Uh, I see a lot of people out there speculating that um, there's really sort of two broader implications, and I'm curious where you where you kind of come down on them. One is, does this hasten the end of, of QT? Uh, because we're getting to that level of lowest, uh, you know, uh, uh, comfortable level of reserves and two maybe more immediately you know we have been through this uh turmoil on the banking system in in the last few months that has been partly driven by outflows from bank deposits um and so does this does this bring those concerns back to the fore are we going to see you know uh speaking of equities are we going to see kre uh taking another uh big leg down in response to this kind of a thing Great question. So yeah, Carrie is, is the banking ETF, a lot, of, a lot of bank stocks. And then, but you said, does this uh, impact QT? Alex, you're referring to, I think, the lowest com- comfortable level of reserve. So uh, reserves in the bank system have gone down, uh, but they may approach the lowest comfortable level of reserves, which you know Joseph will tell us all about. Yeah, just yeah. Curious if the the TGA uh, the need to issue bills is going to accelerate the end of QT, of quantitative tightening. Oh, TGA not. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a really good question. I think a lot of people are really interested in this. I, I certainly see it on Twitter. 
So I, I think at a high level, what people are concerned about is that now that the debt ceiling is over, the U.S. government is going to have to refill their checking account at the Fed. That account is called the Treasury General Account. Right now, it's really low, but they actually tell us what their target is. They want to fill it up to about $550 billion uh, by the end of June or $600, and $600 billion by the end of September. These are targets. Uh, they, they're not like legally binding, but there's an indication of what the Treasury wants to do. Now, the way the Treasury refills its TGA is it goes and it borrows a whole lot of money, issues bills, issues coupons, and that that money then goes into the TGA account. Now, the money can come out of two places. One is it can come out of the banking se sector. So, for example, if I have a bank account and then I want to go and buy a newly issued Treasury, then I withdraw money out of the bank and then I buy a Treasury. And through some pump plumbing, money goes out of the bank system and into the TGA account. So and what's lost <clears throat> is our reserves. Reserves go out yes, of the bank system exactly. into the TGA. Reserves are the liabilities of the Fed and the assets of banks. Yeah, so they're basically cash. Uh, so if you're a commercial bank, you have a checking account at the Fed and you keep your cash there and it's called reserve. So that's how that would work. Another way that the TJ could be refilled is if um, <clears throat> excuse me, money market funds withdraw money out of the reverse repo facility and take that money to buy treasury bills. Now that then would drain money out of the RRP and put that money into the treasury general account. Now, if, you, if that happens, um, the banks don't lose any liquidity. And the RRP, I think of it as just this huge wad of excess liquidity in the financial system. And so it, it's going to be really harmless. Now, the question is that let's say that the Treasury issues all this debt and it ends up not being purchased by money market funds, but by investors who bank with commercial banks. If, if that happens, then you could see the reserves in the banking system drop really quickly uh, by a few hundred billion dollars. And, you know, that, that could scare the Fed because the Fed thinks that commercial banks need a certain amount of liquidity uh, to function properly. So um, I think Alex has a really good question is that, you know, how close are we to this lowest comfortable reserves? And if we hit that, does the Fed stop QT or what will it do? There's a lot of, I, I've read a lot of people have comments on this. So I don't think that, so I, eventually I think we're going to hit lowest comfortable level of reserves, I think within a few months. Uh, part of it is because of the TGA rebuild. Part of it is because we have a lot more money uh, going into money market funds. And I suspect that the money market funds will, will reinvest that in the RRP. Uh, and so the overall level of reserves will, will gradually drain because of that. Um, some people think that the Fed could easily uh, push money out of the reverse repo facility back into the banking sector by toggling parameters of it, like counterparty limits and stuff like that. But that's, that's definitely something that they will do. Uh, the RRP is there to control interest rates, to provide a floor. They don't want to mess with it. I don't think they would stop QT either because that's part of their you know, monetary policy on autopilot. Inflation at 5%, stopping QT, really, really bad signal. Um, if, if there was an emergency procedure that they would do to try to put liquidity back in the banking sector, <clears throat> it would be to do the same thing that they did, I think, in, uh, in September and October of 2019, that is to buy treasury bills. Uh, from the Fed's perspective, that's a really, really neutral thing to do. Uh, they're issuing reserves, which are short-duration assets, and using it to purchase treasury bills, which are also short-duration assets. So that doesn't really 
from their perspective, that's not stimulative because they're not taking duration out of the financial system. I think they would do that. Um, there is also a view, I think, that, like Alex mentioned, that something like this could hurt the smaller commercial banks uh, because if you're withdrawing liquidity out of the banking system, what if the banks that lose that liquidity are the smaller or medium-sized banks? Uh, and some people perceive them to be fragile, right? So if they lose liquidity, maybe it's not good for them. Um, I don't worry about that. Uh, my sense is that it'll come largely out of the GSIBs. Uh, one way to think about this is who buys treasury coupons? Well, odds are they're not banking at Springfield Community Bank. They're, they're probably some kind of institutional investor who has a lot of money who banks with a, with a GSIB. So um, that, that's, I suspect that the, the drain, when it comes, will be focused on the larger banks. Right. So reserves are used to settle accounts between banks and uh, they have a wide. And the Fed as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the Fed and not a wide array. I'm sorry. Uh, and the Treasury and the Treasury. And, and the Treasury. My yes, apologies. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And they uh, they have, you know, they're very important. Whereas reverse repo facility, you know, $1 in the RRP is the same as a dollar as, as a reserve, but it's very a narrow, narrow usage. Almost by definition, it's an excess thing. So if they could, they could drain the sort of, quote, useless dollars out uh, and use those to, to fund the treasury general account to, to, for the treasury to fund itself, that would be preferable to, to pref, uh, draining the banking system reserves where the banking system arguably needs uh, a lot of reserves, or at least that's what the federal reserve thinks. And if, if I think I'm looking at the right chart, so, uh, you know, before 2007, the reserves in the banking system were tiny, like 45 billion. Uh, yeah. In uh, the summer of 2021 at 4.2 trillion, now they're at 3.2 trillion, and the Fed estimates that the lowest comfortable level of reserves is 2.2 trillion. So we do have a trillion uh, buffer. But does the Fed does the Fed worry uh, once it hits that 2.2 trillion, or are they going to start worrying before if, if it continues to go down and down? Yeah. So I think there's there's two ways to think about this. Governor Waller thinks that when he thinks about bank reserves, he adds RP balances into it. So from his perspective, even if we go to 2.2 trillion. In bank reserves, if we still have a large RRP, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, I, I don't know if everyone else on the Fed thinks that way. I, I suspect there are people in the Fed who just narrowly look at bank reserves and they would get nervous. I just don't know how influential they are. Well, how do you think about does the how does the overnight RRP get drained, and how does that interact with the timing of the of the uh, end of quantitative tightening? So from the, from, if, from the wallet perspective, you know, having a large RRP gives you plenty of runway to, to run QT for a long time. Uh, the thinking being that if you are a bank and you're low in liquidity, you can go and find ways to take money out of the RRP. You could, uh, one, go to your depositors, offer them high deposit rates so they won't take money and put it in a money market fund. Or you can go and borrow from a home loan bank who turns around and borrows from, from a money market fund. So, so that's one way to think about it. Uh, large RRP, tremendous runway for, for quantitative tightening. Now, if you don't subscribe to that view, if you believe that you should just focus on bank reserves, then, then it can be a problem because you are likely going to be in a situation where bank reserves drop really low, really quickly. Um, so in that camp, uh, you know, you could, again, just do reserve management purchases, um, but in terms of the broader broader theme of when QT will stop, I, I'm, I'm with, I, I've, I've heard Fed people 
being asked about this, they're, they're basically all on the same page. It, it's going to be on autopilot uh, for the foreseeable future. I, I think that when inflation is where it is now and you, you want to have a message of higher for longer, I don't think they really want to change that, change, change the sense of the balance sheet at, at all. Right, so the overnight repo facility was basically at, at zero in 2020, uh, peaked out at 2.2 trillion, 2.3 trillion. Now we're at 2.1 trillion. So quantitative easing has been going on, excuse me, quantitative tightening, the re- Fed's reduction of its balance sheet has been going on for over a year. And the reverse repo facility hasn't been drained at all, which is interesting. And then the no, reason it's probably going to go higher. What do you say? It's a little, yeah. I think it'll go higher. You think it'll go higher? Okay, why is that? I think it'll go higher. Oh, yeah. Just another thing to, to Alex's point. Um, as time goes on, the level of bill issuance will gradually increase, and that will help to draw some money out as well. Um, it's hard to know exactly how what the level of issuance will be. It's going to be very large. Uh, in the next few months, it's going to be about a trillion. Is that enough? I don't know. I think it, it's enough. To, to, to have some impact, but uh, but it's also hard to know because from, from my work, I think that there's just a lot of demand for, for bills from um, not money market funds, but let's say private wealth managers or like family offices and, and things like that. Over the past few months, those those were the, those people are the marginal buyers. Money market funds have really not been buying any bills. So you, if you want to have, uh, let's say money funds take money out of the RRP and, and buy bills, you need to keep issuing a lot of bills until bill yields become attractive enough. So let's say trading above the RRP. It's hard to know how much, how, how much issuance that requires, but eventually you'll get there simply because the deficit grows uh, infinitely, uh, it seems. So eventually you're going to get enough bills to do that. So that's another way that if we can get through this, this um, what I perceive to be a temporary drop in reserves, then as bill issuance gradually ramps up, you, you could see the RP come down and reserves go back up as well. That, that's another path. I, I, Why do you think the RRP will go up, Joseph? Historically, okay, this is how this works. So Fed hikes rates, nothing, nobody puts money into a money market fund, nobody cares. About a year afterwards, people begin to care and they begin to move money into money market funds. And money market funds then begin to invest in the reverse repo facility. We saw this the last two hiking cycles as well. Uh, it really takes about a year for, for money to start flowing into, for, for people to be, be interested in investing into money market funds. So uh, from, from what I see in weekly money market fund data, the inflows have been picking up every week. And so as the money market funds get more inflows, they're going to have to have somewhere to invest them. And right now, that, it seems like it's, it's going to be the RRP. So let's say every week we get, say, $30 billion in inflows, $100 billion a month. Well, that, that money has to go somewhere. Uh, it could just end up in the RRP. I think the flow work that you do is really interesting. And I, and I know that it's very hard to know the causal relationship between flows and prices. But just looking around at macro variables, do you see any relationship between, uh, let's say, GDP or employment with flows? I mean, one of the, my sense of just listening to people is that a lot of people talk about how we, when we have a lot of jobs, uh, people, because of, uh, let's say, target date funds, they get through their employers. Um, they have jobs. Money goes their money goes every every two weeks um, from their employer to the target date fund, and, and that keeps flows steady. Is, is that a variable, or, or are there other things that, that could potentially be predictive of flows? Yeah, so that's a great question, Joseph, and it's one that arguably we should do more work on at Exanti. We do 
you know, our, our traditional focus is on currency, you know, foreign currency strategy. And so we've historically focused more on cross-border and cross-currency flows for that very reason. But it is probably analytically, conceptually more rigorous and, and, and correct to, foc- to take a, a more holistic view of flows, uh, where cross-border flows are just one sub-component of a broader set of, of, of intersectoral flows. So that's more of the flow of funds type analysis that you would see. Uh, you know, there's, there's others, other people who, who specialize in this as well, and we do an increasing amount of that. I guess I would say um, it's very hard to model um, – what you're describing, we, there's there are data sources that we look at and that one can look at to try and track the, those kinds of flows. Um, but the the hard thing to mo- the hardest thing to model is really um, what what savings are ultimately going to be. Like that's that is the the genesis of where these financial flows really come from. It's the difference between income and expenditure. Right, so you can assume a certain path for how much you're going to earn this year and how much you're going to spend this year, and the difference is going to be your savings, right? Uh, and then once you have that savings, first it goes into your checking account, and then you decide, okay, now I'm going to take it from my checking account. And I'm going to put, you know, 60% of it in the equity market and 40% of it in the bond market or something like that. So, coming up with that asset allocation uh, sort of rule or strategy is in some senses the easier part relative to being able to know exactly how people's incomes and their spending is going to behave and therefore what the savings flow is going to be. Um, But, you know, that's kind of one of the things that we try and do when we take a longer term perspective on global flows is where do we, you know, where do we think, how is demographic aging going to impact Japan's overall, you know, growth and their their income growth and then their savings and how much they're going to then invest abroad versus domestically, right? So when you start to get into modeling those things, you're talking about, you know, you're, you're very familiar with the, the T-tables and the interlocking balance sheets, but uh, it gets uh, pretty pretty complicated pretty quickly when you're talking about all those interlocking balance sheets. Right. And so, Alex, uh, when people are making a lot of money, when the unemployment rate is very low, you know, everyone, almost everyone who wants a job has one. So they're getting you know, money every two weeks. And as such, banks can't, you know, they're going to be spending more money. Uh, banks can comfortably lend to them because they know you're, they're you know, very unlikely that they're going to default. And that's exactly what we've seen. Defaults have been a record low. You know, delinquency is record low. Um, 2020, 2021, they're picking up but from very low levels. Um how do you see this playing out? Because I know that many people have so many different measures of excess savings. There's a ton, a glut of savings from the stimulus of 2020, 2021. The Federal Reserve, of course, helped as well. Uh, and that savings rate, you know, say people are going down, down and real income, I th- believe, is negative. In other words, people's income is going up by less than inflation, or at least it was uh, when the price of oil is going wild. But uh, yeah, I mean, how do you sort of see this affecting the economy over the, the next year or so? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, again, just I'll, I'll try and let the data that I that I that I follow speak for itself, right? So, um, we've seen a lot of inflows into fixed income funds. We've seen a lot of inflows into money market funds. We've seen outflows from deposits, 
and we have seen generally weaker flows into equities. So if you kind of just, those are the, the sort of four big places that you can think about putting money. Like there's obviously there's alternatives, there's gold, there's crypto, there's, you know, there's, there's many more asset classes than that. But um, in, in the, the sort of at the highest level, I, I think of, of the system like that, right? I earn income and I can either leave it in my checking account. I can take it from my checking account uh, and put it into a money market fund. Uh, or I can decide to allocate to something that it maybe has a bit more duration risk or that has a bit more credit risk associated with it, uh, a bit more volatility associated with it. So those would be things like, you know, corporate bonds, you know, or um, equities uh, or foreign equities or something like that. Um, so when I look at the flow data, what, what I'm seeing right now is um, <clears throat> the savings rate is low. So the flow of new savings that's coming in every month is lower than what it was in the recent past where we had excess savings. And then if you look at how people are deploying uh, across different asset classes, those savings, it tends to be out of deposits, but still into something that's very liquid and money-like. People really want to hide out and because of the shape of the curve in very low duration assets that earn the highest possible yield. Uh, and they're hesitant to kind of go down the credit spectrum because of the concerns about where we are in, this, in the economic cycle. And I think they're hesitant to take on duration risk. That's kind of, I guess, the, the big picture of what I would say uh, on, on, on those sort of savings flows. Got it. Thanks. Um, guys, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Alex, your work at, at Ex-Ante Data, you work, of course, with uh, Jens Nordvig, who I recently interviewed. And you know, I've seen Ex-Ante's work, which you fortunately uh, shared with me, and it, it is excellent. So if if there are any institutional investors uh, watching, they should definitely check that out. And Alex also has a great blog as well, an accessible blog for it's kind of you can also, yeah, we have a public blog um, or a Substack uh, called Money Inside and Out. Jens actually just put out a, a great note on um, the hatred for the dollar, uh, his, his, his two decades of wisdom on um, dollar cycles and uh, why everybody's talking about de-dollarization right now. So you should check it out. It's called Money Inside and Out on Substack. Yes. And of course, Joseph, uh, you are on Twitter at FedGuy12, your book, Central Banking 101. Number two on Amazon uh, for, for finance, well-deserved. Uh, uh, and your blog, fedguy.com, is just absolutely excellent. You know, there's so much insight per word, like not a wasted word. You write in a very lawyerly fashion. And uh, for the entire existence of fedguy.com, Joseph, you know, people have been getting all this value, but they haven't been paying uh, at, at all. Fedguy.com has been free. I think in the last piece, you hinted that you might uh, soon be transitioning to a, a paid service, which... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's understandable. Will there be any more free posts or is, uh, is the sort of the, the, the free time is, is over very soon? Uh, yeah, I, I think I also have free posts every now and then. But like you mentioned, Jack, I think I'm going to I'm going to uh, change the, the, the business model a little bit going forward. Got it. Well, that, that makes sense. Uh, people should people check, check that out. Uh, well, thank you both so much. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. 
please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.